0: Okay, uh, we are still in our study of 1st and 2nd Corinthians over our Address the Mess series. Now, uh, as, as usual, I'll catch you up in 2nd Corinthians a little bit from 1st Corinthians, but it's got to be a brief, brief recap. Uh, but we started in 2nd Corinthians a few weeks ago, uh, and it's just going on kind of the same lines as what we were studying in 1st Corinthians, but I think there might be a few more applicable things for us today. Uh, and as I said in the weeks past, this is arguably the most personal uh, An autobiographical of all the letters that Paul wrote. Uh, and the reason it's that personal is because Paul was super invested in this church. Uh, he helped him, uh, he helped establish them, uh, but he lived with them 14 or 15 months while he was establishing them. And you can't live with somebody that long without developing close personal ties. So they were very close to him. They had friendships that were uh, probably going to last a lifetime, and they were just very, very important to him. So after he wrote the first letter he thought, well, I'll stop by and see how much of a change it made, right? And when he stopped by, he found out that he still had a lot of opposition to his message and to his ministry, and they hadn't uh, made the changes necessary yet. He saw he still had a lot of work to do. Uh, There were still people questioning his integrity, and were being deceived by the false teachers and false prophets and uh, all the false apostles that were around. Um, And it's really dumb. I I bring this up every week, but it's really stupid the, the reason they were mad at him. They were mad because he said he changed his plans he told him one day he was going to be there and then he tells them, i can't make it that day i'm going to come another day and i'm going to take a different route and they got mad at him and so because of that they said he had no integrity and shouldn't be an apostle that's so stupid it, because it tells you that that's really not about paul when you're that bitter and attacking other people over something silly like that it's usually you reflecting your own guilt or your own issues on someone else because who gets mad for people's plans changing everybody would hate my guts if that was a thing I'm just saying, how many people here have to change your plans regularly? So you can't be saved. I mean, basically, that's what they were saying to him. So it was pretty rough. So he knew he still had a lot of work to do. Uh, so he knew he would still needed to make sure he kept writing him the letters. So he wrote him this, sec- this other letter. There's actually four letters. Only two were considered inspired. This is the second of the two that were considered inspired. Uh, and he wrote it to him. And he first wanted to defend himself against all the accusations and explain that he did have integrity and he didn't do anything wrong. But he also wanted to share the fact that he struggled in ministry too. Everybody struggles in ministries when you're in ministry. And he's like, listen, I'm getting persecuted. I'm, I'm going through the same struggles you are, and so are thousands of other believers. But God is getting us all through, and he'll get you through. The reason he's not getting you through is because you keep making concessions. You keep giving in to the world around you and trying to be more like them and more like God. That's why you're struggling. So that's kind of the reason Paul wrote that letter. Now in today's message, uh, Paul's going to remind the Corinthians of the power that serving Christ actually wields in a Christian's life. I mean, and he's also going to encourage them to be open and honest and to develop relationships that will strengthen their faith, not weaken it. So I titled the message Oil and Water because today we're going to be talking about the danger of entering into uh, binding relationships with unbelievers and believers because oil and water just don't mix. Okay, so you're caught up. All right, now let's jump in chapter 6. Now, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 1. We'll see. Uh, But 6, verse 1 says, and working together with him, we also urge you not to uh, receive the grace of God, what? In vain. in vain. Okay, that's really important. Now the word urge here in verse 1 is from the Greek word parakaleo, and it means to make an appeal. Okay, So Paul also used the same word when he was making an appeal to the Corinthians earlier to be reconciled to God. So if you look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal. That's that same word through us. Uh, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And in 2 Corinthians 6:1, he was making an appeal, but he was making an appeal that they not receive the grace of God in vain. Now, when you hear that, that sounds a little strange. So I'll explain it. The Greek word in vain is kinos, uh, and it means uh, without result or uselessly. OK, without result or uselessly. That's what in vain means. So Paul was basically saying, don't ignore the opportunities God offers you in your faith to grow closer to him and be more effective. Make sure you're not, uh, you're not receiving God's grace in vain. And what he meant was, you know, for the Corinthians, that meant that they were not to allow the false teachers to sidetrack them anymore. They were being sidetracked from being effective. God had work for them to do, but the enemy was working through the people around them, And those false apostles and false teachers were saying, listen, this Paul guy you're following, this, this guy's trash." I mean, did he come when he said he was going to come? No? Well, I guess you don't mean that much to him, do you? And they started doing stuff like that to him and trying to turn them against Paul, uh, and they were falling for it. And they also were sidetracked because those false apostles and false prophets were using legalism uh, and, and self-propagating messages to make themselves feel better uh, to try to draw people away from the message of the gospel. And Paul knew that, that focusing on legalism and personal gain hinders the message of grace. He said that will never work with grace. Okay? And because those who practice those things, they don't allow grace to work within them. Okay? When you're worried about being self-propagating, when you're worried about being legalist, listen, legalism is poison. Okay? When you go to a church that has more rules than the Bible, run. Okay? <laughs> run. You know? And legalism is one of those things that it's, it, it, it exists to make people feel self-righteous. That's what it exists for. Okay? And they were pushing legalism. And he's saying, listen, as long as you're pushing that stuff, the grace of God will not work in you, okay? And not allowing the power of God to work in you or through you is receiving the grace of God in vain because you have this power of God dwelling in you that you're not using. You're being sidetracked by other people. That's what he meant by letting it, uh, receiving that grace in vain. Now, Paul knew that if they didn't turn back to serving God the way they're supposed to, that it was going to cost them more than they wanted to pay because there would be rewards that they would have to forfeit, okay? Now, what rewards? There are two different kinds of rewards that God has promised believers. Uh, One is the temporary rewards, and that's the rewards we get here on earth, right? Uh, You guys might know them as handfuls of purpose. Have you ever, like, been praying for something, you don't know how a bill's gonna get paid or an illness or something, and in the 11th hour, God just steps up? Has that ever happened to anybody? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And when it happens, you know that God is just whispering in your ears, listen, don't get sidetracked, I'm still here. I'm still here I'm still right beside you. Trust me. So there are temporary rewards that happen. those are the ones God gives us here. But then there's a the promise of eternal rewards, and when it talks about that in the New Testament, it's talking about the opportunity to serve in the millennial kingdom. Now, without preaching a whole message on the millennial kingdom, you have to remember the Jews didn't look forward to going to heaven. That's not what they looked forward to. They didn't look forward to streets of gold and all that stuff. They didn't care about that. They knew that they were promised. This 1,000-year kingdom where the Messiah would reign on high. And it would be a kingdom that was ran in in absolute perfect justice, meaning lawyers couldn't get you off on a technicality, right? Because the judge is the son of God. It's going to be a perfect time for a 1,000 years that was promised in the scriptures. And that's what they look forward to. But what they didn't realize was that's a reward for being faithful. Those who are faithful while they're here on earth get the opportunity to reign with him, meaning reign with Christ. Those who are not faithful will enter the millennial kingdom, but you won't get to serve. Now, how many people in here played sports growing up? How many people would love to sit the bench? (laughs) Look, there's two. Dad made me. I'm just, know No, but seriously, that's what it's like. Imagine sitting. It's like sitting the heavenly bench, if you think about it. You go into the millennial kingdom and watch the faithful people who didn't waste the grace that they were given get to serve under the authority of Christ in that kingdom, and you basically sit the bench. So that's, that's the rewards they stood to lose. And Paul said, listen, there's no amount of peer pressure or persecution worth forfeiting all those rewards. It's just not worth it. Get your mind right is basically what he was telling them. Now, to emphasize that, he quoted from Isaiah 49.8. And I want you to understand, this verse is often taken out of context, generally by evangelists. But I'll, and I'm not against evangelists, so don't email me. I'm just saying. But 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he says, at the acceptable time I listen to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Okay? Now, we hear that because a lot of people use that in reference to salvation of your soul. And that would be incorrect. Okay? The word salvation is from the Greek word soteria. And it means to deliver or to reconcile. To deliver or to reconcile. Actually, it's not used that much in reference to salvation of the soul in the New Testament. Mainly in the Gospel of John is it used as that word used for salvation of the soul because that's the one gospel of the four that is dedicated to teaching people how to believe. Other times it's just talking about being delivered. When we hear the word salvation, we want to think salvation of the soul, but remember Paul wrote this letter to believers in Corinth. Why would he write to believers and say, today is the day of salvation. What's he saying? Get saved again? Well, you we know he's not saying that. You can only be saved once. So he was not talking about your eternal life here. That's not, that wasn't what's in play. Uh, he was talking about deliverance, all right? So it's not salvation of the soul. It's referring to something different. What he was saying was if you would be faithful and turn back to God, you would receive the salvation or deliverance from the consequences of your disobedience, right? Listen, no matter what you're doing, no matter how you're rejecting God, and we all go through phases, Right? We serve a God that's so merciful and so forgiving that if you will stop what you're doing and say, Lord, I confess what I'm doing is wrong, forgive me. The Bible says he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? And at that moment, you can be spared of the consequences of your disobedience. You could be delivered from those consequences. Okay? So when he was talking about salvation here, he was saying if you want to stop suffering, if you want to stop uh, being downtrodden by the persecution, then remain faithful. Stop compromising. Stop being willing to be a legalist. But you know that's not what God wants. Stay faithful to God, and eventually he will deliver you. Or, so that's why he's saying, when is the time to change your ways? He's saying, now is the day. And now is the acceptable time. I've had people come to me in counseling, and they're like, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I'm just trying to find a way to stop. And I tell them, listen, I'm not belittling your issues. But if you want to know when the best time to stop is, it's right now. It's right now. Because gambling with time yet to be lived is gambling with something you have no control over. So to say, I will change a month from now, you're betting against time you don't have. You don't know that you have that much time. So when he's saying today's the acceptable time, Paul was saying, listen, enough already. How long are you going to be deceived by these idiots? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be delivered from the consequences of your disobedience. Now, one of the things when he's saying, you know, he's trying to get them to be delivered so they wouldn't have to suffer the consequences, right? That's the same topic Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 3.10. We talked about this a few weeks ago. This 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15 is the Bema Seat of Judgment or the Judgment Seat of Christ. And this is where only believers go to be judged whether they can serve in the kingdom or not, okay? That's what this is, the Bema Seat. Now listen to this. It talks about suffering loss, and this is the loss that Paul was trying to keep them from suffering. First Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God... Which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we know the foundation is Jesus Christ. You can say that loud. We know the foundation is? There you go, Jesus Christ. We'll edit that, right? Uh, We know the foundation is Jesus. Anyone building on Jesus is what? They're a believer, right? They're a believer. Only believers can build on the foundation of Christ because if you haven't believed, that's not your foundation, right? So we're talking about believers here. Verse 11. uh, I just read that. Verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, uh, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. As I said in another message earlier, um, we think of hell every time we hear fire. Realistically, that's not very, very seldom is that actually true in the New Testament. When it's talking about hell, it'll use a modifier like eternal fire, unquenchable fire, right? Something like that. Usually when you see fire, it's in reference to judgment. Because they, one of the best, you know, illustrations for them was they knew that when they took their metals and stones and stuff through the fire, it burned the impurities off and what came out was perfect. So they likened that purifying process with judgment. So a lot of times when they said they talked about fire, they were talking about being judged and purified through judgment. That's what it's talking about here when it says, though, as uh, when it says, uh, the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Verse 14: If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. Those are the rewards that come for people who do things for the right reasons. You can do good things for bad reasons. Did you know that? If you give a bunch of money just so you can get your back patted, you know, your back patted, just keep it. I remember one time an organization wanted to give us a very large sum. And I said, well, that's generous of you. And they said, but we want you to shake our hand in the paper and mention us. And I said, then keep it. And they said, why? I said, because the only people we're going to praise for what we get is God. It's certainly not going to be you. So they gave it to somebody else who was willing to shake their hand in the paper. That wasn't me. But in my opinion, and in Scripture, it tells us that we shouldn't let the left hand know what the right hand does. When we give with the right heart, not wanting credit, wanting to see God's, God's will accomplished, That's something God can bless. So those who do those kind of things, they will receive reward. Verse 15. Here's what Paul is trying to keep the Corinthians from falling under. He says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. That's the loss Paul was talking about. Uh, But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Like I said uh, last week, the best translation of that is probably in the New Living where it says, as though escaping a fire. So in essence, Paul was just saying, I'm trying to keep you from standing at the Bema Seat of Judgment and looking at Jesus and having him say, I gave you every opportunity and you took the grace of God in vain. You did nothing with the power of God that lived in you, so here is your reward, nothing. You get to sit and watch from the bench, okay? That's what he was trying to keep him from. Now in verses 3 through 10, I'm going to warn you as we go through verses 3 through 10. I've told you several times that Paul is very wordy, Right? This is a prime example, okay, and I know it's inspired, but Paul's the kind of guy you wouldn't want to ask directions from. You know what I mean? See, so would be like, yeah, go down the road, turn left, or that one spotted dog has one eye and the ear, this kind of shape. You know, he gives you all these details you don't need, right? But pay attention here. He's going to reference some of his own experiences to try to prove three things to him that we'll look at here in a minute. So in 2 Corinthians 6.3, he says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Now now he's going to start listing how they've commended themselves as servants of God, in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and genuine love in the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown, yet well known, as dying, yet behold we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. (laughs) Now if I wrote that, it would have been a little different. If God would have inspired me to write that, I'd say we have been through a ton of stuff and we're still standing. Next verse. I'm just saying. But that's what he was trying to let them know is like, listen, they think that we're dead, but we're actually making people alive with the gospel. They think we're poor because we don't have big houses and properties, but we're making people rich because we are getting them to be in the family of God, which is the King of Kings. We are creating people to be wealthy in the Spirit. So he makes all these comparisons, right? And he makes these comparisons because he's wanting them to know, listen. The reason we get through this and are blessed is we don't give up. If you would just stand strong and not give up in your persecution, you would be able to get through it and say these same things, that you're making those rich and that they can't take you out. See, now the three things he was trying to tell him: first he wanted uh, to defend himself against the accusations that they made against him. He's like, you guys are saying I lied to you. Do you know what I'm doing out here? Do you understand what I'm doing? I am traveling from town to town, not even accepting the money that I'm supposed to accept as a, as a preacher. Instead, I'm making tents so that you gossips won't talk behind my back. That's a Chris Mosley version. Uh, right? I'm, I'm going town to town. I'm getting beat. I'm getting whipped. I'm getting thrown into prison. Right? I'm getting called into question. And yet, I stand firm for your sakes. I stand firm. So, when you say I didn't come because I had no integrity, I didn't come because God called me to do something else that was much more important, and I called you and let you know. So he was defending that, first of all. Second, he wanted to prove that despite all the sufferings he endured, God is faithful, right? Because you notice everything he went through, he countered it with something positive. They think we're dead, but we're alive. I mean, they think we're poor, but we're making rich. So he was, every time he would put something negative, this wasn't a wine session, not that any of you ever whine, but not that this is a wine session. He was Saying, yeah, these things happened, but God was faithful. This happened, and God was faithful, right? If you would keep doing what he asked you to do, he'd be faithful for you also. So I just love how he used the positive and the negative together there. And the third thing he wanted them to realize here was that spiritual warfare is a reality. When you talk about spiritual warfare, people look at you like you've lost your mind, right? I've talked to people before, and I say, that's just the devil. And they go, oh, yeah, that's the devil. Okay, the boogeyman, that's the devil. And I'm like, do you believe in God? Yeah. Well, then you need to believe in him because the same book that tells us God exists tells us the enemy exists, right? And there is spiritual warfare going on all around us because wherever God is working, the enemy is working. That's just the way it is. And you can let that scare you if you want, but I say I would not allow that to scare me. And I'll tell you why, because wherever God is working, the enemy is working also. I just stay closer to God because I know he wins. You know, I know he wins, so I just stay closer to him. And Peter even warned similar to this uh, in 1 Peter 5:8, He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. devour. Not just harm, devour. That means destroy. Verse 9, but resist him. Firm in your faith. So how do you resist him? You stay firm in your faith. You don't compromise knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So I just think that is so powerful the way he says that. There is a spiritual battle going on, and the devil wants to destroy us, but resist him. Why? Because when you resist him, you're doing so in the spirit, and the spirit will make sure he flees, right? That's what he's talking about. Now, one of the most powerful scenes, how many people have seen The Passion of Christ? Okay, it's kind of older now. I used to joke with my wife all the time and say, I'm not going to watch that. I know how it ends. But, you know, yeah, I know. She didn't buy it either. So anyway, we went and saw it. I'm sorry, it didn't sound good to me to read a movie. Anybody else go, I have to read? Anybody else? I like, I was going to hire somebody. Read it to me. No, I'm just kidding. No, but so I went to see it. I'm glad I did. There was some things in it that were brilliant, some things, but some things in it were really brilliant. And one of the things I really liked in the Passion of Christ that makes I think of it whenever I read this 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Remember when Jesus was praying in the garden in the Passion of Christ? I love what the director did. It shows Jesus praying, and the sweat and blood is dripping, and there's this shadowy figure that we know is the devil, it's implied, just lurking around him while he prays. I'm getting goosebumps when I talk about this. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so we see him lurking around Jesus as he's praying, right? And we see that he's excited because he thinks Jesus is losing, and that's why he's praying, Right? And when I see that, I think that's exactly what Peter's talking about because the devil is doing that very thing with all of us. What, either him or one of, his, one of his minions is always lurking in the shadows, trying to destroy what God is doing good in our lives. That's what the enemy does. But God didn't put us out here without any help. For every time the enemy sends one of his agents, God sends his. Okay, There is a battle going on you can't see. And I wish that God would... Open our eyes and let us see the battles, the fierce battles that are going on around us in the spirit realm to protect us. And a perfect example of that, and I couldn't help it, I've got to go to this, was Elijah and his servant. And this is in the Old Testament. This is one of the best examples of spiritual warfare, and Elijah was able to show his servant what it really meant, okay, with God's help. So I'm just going to catch you up because I won't have to read three books. Um, but the king of Aram, Elisha was staying. Where he could hear the king of Aram And he was coming in and out of that kingdom And he would hear the king making plans to attack Israel And Israel was divided into two kingdoms And the close one at that time was in Samaria So he would hear these plans And then he would go snitch Right And so the king of Aram's like Why is it every time I go To attack They know Why is it I can't have a sneak attack on these people It's like they know our plans And one of the people says Ugh they do, because Elisha the prophet is Elisha the narc, he's telling them everything you say, right? and so it enraged the king, and he wanted to kill Elisha and his servant, Now I'll pick up there, and it'll go back a little bit on what I just said, 2nd Corinthians 611, or 2nd Kings 611, now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged, uh, was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to him, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel, basically saying which one of you is Verse 12, one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Verse 13, so he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant, the attendant or servant of the man of God had risen early and gone out behold an army with horses and chariots was circling the city and the servant and the servant said to him alas my master what shall we do okay now we all know what he was doing when he got up and went out in the morning he was peeing I'm just saying (laughs) he just got up he's going out to go potty right and he goes out there and he's like uh surrounded by chariots, armies, soldiers, absolutely terrified him. He sees this army that's totally surrounding just two of them, right? And he runs inside and he basically says, hey, what's going on? We are surrounded by the king of Aram's army. What are we going to do? And listen to this answer. So this is Elisha's answer. So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, you know what the servant thought at that moment. He's going, oh, no. He's lost his marbles. Do you see people, Elijah? Because I don't. I just see them. Where are the people that you see? I mean, you had to be thinking that. He's like, now you're going crazy? Now that we're surrounded, you're going to go Fruit Loops on me now? Right? Then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of the fire, of fire all around Elisha. That chokes me up because that's what's going on that we don't see. Can you imagine if God would let you see like He let Him see? Imagine the fear when He saw that army, and all of a sudden He says, "Show him." And His eyes are open to the spiritual realm. And around this massive army is another massive army called the armies of God, fiery chariots. And most people, when they see that, collapse. They couldn't stand to see the glory of those armies. But Elisha said, I want you to know, not only is there a spiritual warfare, but here's something else you don't know. We're winning. Okay, we're winning because we have more troops, we have more power, and our leader doesn't run. We are winning, and he allowed him to see that. So Elisha's servant learned a valuable lesson that all believers need to learn, and that is no matter how desperate the situation is, God is always there, and he's always on our side. Always. Okay? And even when we seem to be outnumbered, and that happens a lot, it's just impossible for believers to be outnumbered when we serve the king of kings. We can't be outnumbered. They can't put enough troops together to where he can't send an army to surround them because He's God. You know what I mean? So next time you look around and see and all the persecution, you feel like you're being outnumbered, you feel like the world's winning and they're doing all this crazy stuff and people are losing their mind on TV and I don't know about you, but I can't stand to watch the news. (sighs) When I see all that, I have to remember, there are armies of God ready to fight for me. You ever think about that? Ready to fight for me. And everyone else that's willing to surrender to that, willing to fight for it. It's just a different perspective. That's why despite facing all these struggles and persecutions, Paul stayed positive. Paul knew about the battle and knew about the armies, and he knew we were winning. Right? That's the perspective he was trying to instill in the Corinthians. <coughs> i God trying to gather myself here. I had uh, allergies. <laughs> but anyway, 2 Corinthians 6. Now, This is kind of a... These next few verses are kind of short. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because the last few verses I'm going to spend a lot of time on. Okay, so uh, verse 11, he says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. Now, just to make this quicker, O Corinthians in the Greek is actually a very personal... uh, personal term when you the way it's worded in the greek it shows an emotional connection a deep emotional connection paul used the similar verbiage with the galatians uh, and with the philippians when he was talking to them oh galatians oh philippians it had the same you know idea but the one used in corinthians here is actually very deep this is a very deep uh personal connection he's revealing here and basically what he was saying is i've always been open and honest with you even if it cost me getting put in jail or cost me my life, the threat of losing my life, I was honest with you. I poured myself out to you. All I'm asking is that you do the same in return, because I'm tired of having to treat you like little children in a nursery. One of these days, you've got to grow up and join the fight with me. That's basically what he was saying, okay? The end. Let's move on, because I want to spend some time on this next one, all right? Unequally yoked. How many people have heard unequally yoked before? Raise your hands. Okay. I want you to promise me something. You are not going to get mad at me for what I'm about to say, Right? Because if you email me, I'm going to email you, email you back a finger going shame. Because this is remember, God said this, not me. 1 Corinthians 6:14 through 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come up, come out from their midst, and be separate, separate says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome. welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, now unequally yoked, is referring to an apparatus that chains animals to a wagon or a plow. And that apparatus is called a yoke. And it was actually used for multiple animals. You could put a yoke on at least two animals and pin them together so that they could pull plows and things like that, plows and carts. And in Paul's time, it was really common to use oxen and donkeys to pull carts and plows, okay? Now, for the animals to be to pull their plow or their wagon or their cart effectively, they needed to be paired with another animal that was of equal size and strength. Okay? They had to be paired with another animal that was of equal size and strength. Because if they put a big ox with a smaller ox, and I don't know if there's a farm term for that, I'm just going to call it the smaller ox. Is there a word for that? Ox-eye or something? I don't know. (laughs) Sounds like there should be one. Right? So big oxen, little oxen. Okay? If you put a big ox with a small ox... It won't work. And the reason is the big ox has more strength, a bigger stride than the small ox. And what happens is neither one of them really want to be out there, right? So when they're plowing, the big ox will slow down for the one that's here. But since he still has a big stride, he's moving around him. So they literally, people would sit back and probably laugh at people who put the wrong size animals in a yoke together because they would go in circles. They'd really plow in circles going, something's wrong with this. You know what I mean? But it's because whichever side the weaker one was, The the other one would succumb to it and slow down, and it would do circles, right? It didn't work. You couldn't do that. And anyone that was a farmer that used carts and plows knew you had to have equal size. Now, um, (laughs) here's the other thing. Some people actually use two totally different animals in the same yoke. They would use, like, for instance, an ox and a donkey. You would think you would look at those two and go, this ain't going to work. You know, something, let's see, 1,600-pound ox, Whatever donkey's way, not that much, you know. But you would think you'd look at that and go, I'm thinking this isn't going to work, right? But there were people that actually tried to do that. And the result was exactly the same. The weaker would slow the stronger down, and they'd just go in circles and make no headway. Okay, that's what Paul was kind of trying to refer to here, right? And Paul was using this illustration because of Deuteronomy 22.10, they would understand it more. Uh, in Deuteronomy 22.10, it says, You shall not plow with an ox uh, and a donkey together. You have to think when they were writing that in Deuteronomy, you're thinking, I'm going to say this, but I can't believe people are stupid enough to do this, but I'm going to put it down as a rule anyway. It's kind of like when you see shampoo bottles that says don't drink. Who drank it? <laughs> Who did that? You know, when you see motor oil, not for human consumption. Reckon? That means somebody did it, right? So probably when they were writing this in Deuteronomy, you're probably thinking, I better make this a law because that idiot's been putting donkeys and ox together. You know what I mean? So that they would understand what's going on here. Now, how does this apply to the Corinthians and how does it apply to believers today? See, the Corinthians are being persuaded by these false teachers to reject Paul and his teachings. And, and they were forming spiritual relationships with these false teachers and false apostles. Right? The false apostles and false teachers were, were belittling all the efforts of Paul. And they were saying, you know, follow us. And so they started getting into spiritual relationships with them. And to be honest with you, I believe that it lends to the idea that they probably were marrying some of the people who came from those false prophets and and joining forces with them, right? And so basically they were forming lifelong relationships or binding relationships with enemies of God, in essence, is what they were doing, right? And that's that's what was going on in Corinth. Uh, And because those people rejected, you know, God's apostles and God's truth, now not only is God not going to bless the false apostle, he's not going to bless the people that teamed up with him. So what Paul is saying is, what are you doing? Listen, don't, don't align yourselves with people who are enemies of God, who are teaching a false gospel. Because when God brings punishment on them, guess what? He's going to bring it on you too. And God wants to bless you, but he can't bless you if you put yourself in a situation that's untenable by being with someone who doesn't love God like you do, right? Now, that meant that he could not bless him either with the eternal you know, reigning in the kingdom or bless them with the temporary blessings. Now... I'm sure they were getting in relationships and intermarrying. We know that from the Old Testament and knew both, that they intermarried with, with people who were pagans who didn't believe, and it never worked out good. It was always, always, always a problem, right? Now, let me make one thing straight here. This, he's, he was also talking about businesses, okay, because they were developing business relationships with the Greco-Romans and the Grecians, and these are pagans. He's saying, why would you want to start a business with a pagan? And here's how it works out. Believers should have a different set of moral priorities. A different set of spiritual priorities than the world. And if you get in business with somebody who does not believe in those things, and you start that partnership out like they were doing in Corinth, he's saying, you know what, you might want to bless the temple. You really think that business partner is going to let you use some of your profit for that? No, he's going to try to pull you into the secular world with him. Because what always happened was the weaker ox always pulled the stronger one away. Right? That's what he was trying to show them. Right? So he was saying, stop getting in long-term binding relationships with unbelievers. Now, he was not saying we shouldn't hang out with or be friends with unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. Matter of fact, he tells us many times just the exact opposite. We are supposed to befriend the world and love them and show them the love of Christ. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is getting into long-term binding relationships like, here we go, dating. Come on. Now listen. Let me me explain this to you. Because I get people mad at me every time I say this. Okay? You should not be dating for sport if you're a christian i've had people tell me before they go well it's not that big a deal it's just dating i'm like well what if it gets just serious you ever think about that if you go out with somebody they should at least be a consideration you know what i mean because that's not how we roll right you should not date someone that if it gets serious would be a spiritual hindrance to you okay so dating is one of them now notice i said dating what did i just say Dating. dating don't ask me you shouldn't date unbelievers if you're a believer anyway Right? Getting married. You shouldn't marry an unbeliever if you're a believer. And people say, well, I know somebody that my cousin's uncle's brother's niece's twice-removed cousin did it. And everything worked out great. And I'm like, well, a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. But listen, and most of the time, that's not the case. Right? Here's what I'm saying. You're not one you people say it's not that big a deal. I had someone come to me one time when the man was a Native American spiritualist. Like Mother Earth, you know, Father Eagle, stuff like that. And she was Lutheran. That's all i got to say about that. <laughs> but they said, will you do the marriage? And I said, no. And they got mad. And they said, why would you not do the marriage? I said, because it's doomed. And they got really mad. And I said, listen, you're a believer. They believe that the eagle is their God or whatever. I'm like, they have the right to believe what they want, but understand it will be a problem. Oh, no, love is enough. <laughs> like, you listen to me songs, son. Huh? You know, love is enough. Love wins. Does it? Because everything's going to be cool until you have kids, then everything changes. Because what's going to happen when you say, I want my kids to go to VBS? Heck no. I don't want your kids going to VBS. That's not what I believe. I want my kids to go to some peyote festival or whatever. I'm not trying to be demeaning. I just don't know. You know? And they're saying, I don't know, man. Sorry. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you're not going to want that. You're going to have different priorities spiritually. And it's going to come into play when something as important as your children's lives come into play, right? And what happens if you do well and you decide, hey, I want to give a large sum to my church. I want to give a large sum to this family. And they go, no. Why would I want to give that? I don't even believe in that. It will become a problem. God doesn't write stuff because he was bored, okay? This was, it will become a problem. The same is true with business partnerships. It shouldn't be in binding relationships as business partnerships. Now, I'm not talking about having vendors that are unbelievers. I'm saying you and a buddy start a business. You better have the same faith. Because trust me, if you've ever been a business owner, fate is going to be very important to you. Trust me on that. When it's time for payroll and you're $2,000 short, you're going to be a praying son of a gun. Trust me. Right? But all I'm saying is, if you have different priorities than the other person, it's going to be tough to run a business like that. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't yoke yourself. Tie yourself to, put yourself into a binding relationship with someone that may weaken you. That may steer you another way. Right? Now... When applying the unequal yoke to our time, uh, some of the same situations arise, that's for sure. But believers, let me explain. Notice he said that you shouldn't have two oxen that are the wrong size in the same yoke. So how does that apply to you? Okay, two oxen, what that's trying to say is two believers. They're the same species, right? But one of them is weaker you shouldn't even be unequally yoked with another believer who is not as serious about God as you are. It's not just unbelievers. Anybody that's going to pull you away from God, you need to bail on that relationship, right? Because it will become a problem. I promise you, it will become a problem. And I've seen people's date where one of them's a believer and he's, the, you know, he's just falling into laziness and it's like, oh, I'll go to church on Easter and Christmas, but I'm saved. And the other one's wanting to serve at VBS, is wanting to be involved in women's Bible study and um, whatever, and... He's like, no, you know, we go to church, that's enough. And it becomes a serious problem. You know what? Now the little weaker ox is pulling the stronger ox back. And the next thing you know, it's train wreck, right? Now, I'm not saying that never works out. All I'm saying is the choices, the chances of success are greatly decreased when you don't follow this rule. Now, notice he said don't have an ox and a donkey together, right? That's talking about the believer to the unbeliever. They're different species, and they cannot pull at the same strength it will still weaken the stronger, okay? So that's what it's talking about here, and it's really, really important that you understand this. And I know this makes people mad, but you will live and you'll get over it. But, I mean, it's really important that we understand that different interests and different priorities, we should have different ones if we're believers in the world. So why would you want to mix your priorities with someone who believes totally different than you? It doesn't make any sense to me, right? And now here's the thing. If a believer wants to have spiritual success if a believer wants to be used by God the essence of this message is then trim the fat if you look at your life and you're honest and I'm not having you tell me unless you really want to but if you look at your life I bet you can think of three things that are hindering you from God right now and you know how you know what they are they're the things that the devil's telling you that's not a problem when he whispers that in your ear that's the problem you see what I mean there's some, and people I've had people look me in the face and say there's nothing that pulls me away from God I go really what is that shape, you know, rectangle-shaped thing in your back pocket? Oh, it's a phone. That's right. That doesn't cause any problems. Sure, watching three hours of useless TikTok videos, that spiritually grows you, right? Hey, everybody needs to see the cat unrolling the roll of toilet paper for two hours, right? Hey, I'm going to admit it. I just watched the guy shooting rats with an airsoft gun. I don't know why. <laughs> because it's there. You can blame Eric. He's the one that told me to watch it. Matter of fact, Eric showed it to me, so you guys blame him. He's the blasphemer. No, just kidding. But there's all kinds of things that can pull you away in your lives. Whatever they are, cut them out. Do you have a friend who's always saying, no, don't do that. Come with me. Get rid of them. You know, are you dating someone that says, listen, I don't like this whole church thing. You know what? Say, great, like it with somebody else. Beat it. Get rid of them. If whatever is holding you back, get rid of it. Because I'm telling you right now, those things that are hindering you right now, they're not going to stop hindering you because you don't want them to. They'll only stop when you cut them out. You want to get closer to God? Remove the things that hold you back. If you want to swim across the English Channel, I'm thinking you're not going to put dumbbells on your ankles, right? Listen, get rid of the dumbbell in your life. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't want an ox and a donkey. And ladies, I've seen some of you and you are dating donkeys. Cut them loose. Listen, he just wants you to have spiritual success and anything that hinders you needs to go. That's kind of the whole gist of this chapter. I want you to succeed. Stop doing things that rob your chances of success by eliminating God for someone else or something else. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there and we'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask if you would, please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation briefly. If you'd like me to pray for you, I don't even need to know why. Just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. And I'm not going to chase you down. Bless those people. I do pray for you. Bless those people. Listen, I have, you know how many times in my mind I'm raising my hand. (laughs) Bless those people. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. He'll be praying for you also. I will be praying for you. But believers, I mean, I say this every week. I always pray for us. But I can't help but think the time is short. I mean, if you watch TV, I mean, I am stunned at what's going on. But you know what? hasn't changed? God and His plan. You know who's not surprised? God. You know whose plans haven't changed? God. We need to get our priorities straight again. We need to get back to making Jesus first. Let's pray. God, I thank You so much for Your love and mercy and Your grace. I just love You, Lord, and I thank You that that You could even have anything to do with someone like me. I have nothing to offer. None of us can be good enough. None of us deserve heaven. None of us will ever stop sinning. And You knew that. And you sent your son to die on a cross on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to be perfect. We could believe in the one who was. I thank you for that gift, Lord. And anyone who wants it can have it. It doesn't matter what people think of them, what their reputation is, what they've done in their past. It matters what they believe. And if they can trust that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. And I just pray if they make that decision, they contact us, we want to walk with them in their journey. But God, for those of us who are believers, we are so easily distracted. We're like little children in a toy store. We just keep turning our head. We can't stay focused. God, remove the distractions from our life. Put us on the straight and narrow. Let us be those who share your love with people and draw as many into the kingdom as possible by our lives and the things we say. We believe the time is short, Lord, and we want to be able to stand before you and know that we're going to be rewarded in that kingdom. We want to know that lives were changed because of the message we shared. Give us that passion. We just thank you, God, for all that you do, and we just pray that you bless us to live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home, before we meet again, let us come together and give you the praise that you're so worthy of one more time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.